Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host, Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast paced discussion on leadership, communication, and technologies enabling disruption. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you've not done so, please click subscribe so you automatically and seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's episode. Today on the program, I have Eric Guthy. He is an associate professor in the Department of Management, Society, and Communication at the Copenhagen Business School. Eric, mm-hmm. I, am, I am looking forward to this conversation. I want to take us in all kinds of fun, interesting directions. But maybe before cool. we jump in, you are at your, your farm in, in <laughs> I am. southern Denmark right now. Yes. And, and, and we, we had to delay the podcast a little bit because you had some trees, some work on some trees. What, what a, and you sent me this beautiful <laughs> photo yeah. of, of yeah. a rainbow and a beautiful farmhouse. Yeah. So, so tell, me, tell, tell our audience, I should say, a little bit about you. Wow. Yeah, so uh, I am what I call a recovering American in the sense that I have lived in Denmark for 20 years, uh, on September 1st, actually. And I've been at the Copenhagen Business School the whole time and uh, am a naturalized Danish citizen. So I have double st- citizenship and love. My kids are mostly Danish. And I have come over the years, I mean, even right immediately, to love both living in this country and um, being a European academic and leadership scholar. In fact, one, one thing I say, hopefully this, we just bought this farmhouse. It's a, an old place from the 1800s uh, that's meant to be sort of a vacation home for now and eventually where we will retire. But I'm proud to say that already two prominent leadership scholars who are good friends of mine have already been here. Mary Bean has been to this island last nice. year and Jonathan Gosling just came through last week and spent a couple of days at the farmhouse. So hopefully uh, it will become a place, hopefully you'll eventually come here. You know, I'm in. when Americans can come to Denmark again. So <laughs> I am in. I am in. You'd be most welcome. Now, so. real quick, a couple of your favorite things about Danish culture. What have, you, what have you fallen in love with? I love taxes. I love paying taxes. I love the services that I get from paying taxes. And I think Americans have lost their minds because, um, you know, the, the, the rhetoric, the anti-tax rhetoric in the U.S., has literally gotten to the point where people are cutting off limbs to spite themselves because, mm. you know, the way that government works is by by collectively providing services that individuals can't provide otherwise and that businesses will never provide us. Mm. And so I'm watching the destruction of the postal service in the U.S. with chagrin because I believe in social democracy and a welfare state. And uh, that is one of the things I love about this country. Mm. So, And then I, on, the, on the flip side, and this isn't something you can get in the U.S. as well, while the uh, tree service guy, Rico, was, was working in my yard, the farmer who owns all the land around us showed up because he was curious about what was going on. And, and the kind of the, he's, he's a wily old Danish farmer who's very nice to us, but also really watches over his properties. And so the rural um, community on this island where we bought this house is just stunning. So, mm. 
everybody knows everybody and everybody watches out for everybody else, which I quite love. As well. Oh, that's awesome. So, well, one thing is I was reflecting on our conversation today, a, a place I'd like to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, this podcast, other than, than having Steve Kempster on, yeah. it's been I very U.S. centric. It's, say that well, again. You had Susan. You had Susan Murphy too, who's a, I did. a recovering American. I did. A, I did. You are correct. You are correct. So Susan and Steve, both in the UK. So so mm-hmm. we're we're widening our reach with 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 Denmark now, mm-hmm. <laughs> making our way through Europe, I guess. And they've both been here too, by the way. So oh, not to the farmhouse awesome. yet. Well, <laughs> so so what do Americans need to know about European scholarship mm. on leadership? What do we miss? What are we not seeing? What are some of your perspectives in that space? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I would say the, the overall distinction is somewhat structural and institutional, but also uh, sort of an aesthetic or an intellectual distinction. And so what you have to understand about leadership studies in Europe is that it sprang out of sociology. Mm. Um, and specifically in the UK, uh, developed out of a number of, and this goes for management studies as well, uh, a number of scholars who um, were at the left end of the sociological spectrum, I guess I could say, okay. um, uh, labor process theorists and others who had basically schooled themselves in, you know, Marx, materialist theory and things, but they have a finely tuned sense and continue to have a finely tuned sense of the social dynamics of leadership. Whereas in the U.S., Leadership springs largely out of psychology and social psychology. Mm. And uh, that lends itself to both an individualized leader-centered focus that is very strange to many Euro- uh, scholars of a European sensibility and um, lends itself, in my opinion, also to those wings of the leadership industries that are, um, that are basically synonymous with the self-help industries. And so there's an interior focus in the U.S., that is very different from the way that um, scholarship is prim- on leadership is primarily. Uh, and then you've got the fact that, uh, you know, and I, and I, part of my research is on what I call uh, on the leadership industries. I mean, there are many countries in Europe where there was no f- word for leadership before the leadership industries arrived to tell people, you know, in France, if you talk to a leadership, a leadership consultant, they call leadership leadership mm. because there's no word in French that translates. And in Denmark as well, there wasn't a word called leadership which is what the word we use now for leadership in Danish, until um, the leadership industries were actually specifically Anthony Robbins's um, coaching franchise arrived first. Uh. And it was only after that time that, that uh, people started distinguishing between management and leadership in the way that they do now. So, and that to me also speaks to the idea that you can talk about some of these organizational and interpersonal processes without uh, moving in such a, interior or, you know, I personally, I would say even quasi therapeutic direction. Mm. Um, and so that's a major distinction that I would see. Um, does that making sense? It does. It does. It makes perfect sense. So much more focused on the individual, the leader, as David Day might call it, the leader development and th- kind of putting that person, that individual on the pedestal and as the, the subject of conversation and research versus the social process. I mean, when did he write that? It's amazing to me is when, when did David Day write that? Yeah, it was years ago, right? 2000. I mean, think about it. He wrote that 20 years ago and it's not like it made a dent in what I would call the, you know, interior leadership industrial complex. I mean, it's still 
you know, some people make the distinction, but by and large, I mean, I listened to your podcast with Barbara Kellerman, and although she herself makes the distinction, she still all of her the way she talks is still very much centered on the leader. Mm. I mean, she obviously recognizes both, but it's just the inclination in American cultures, in American circles, is still to move in that direction. Yeah. Now, I would say that because of the way academics works and because of the power of, you know, we just had the Academy of Management and ILA has been coming over here as well. There are many more European scholars who are moving in uh, a much more sort of, uh, and again, I don't want to culturally generalize, but in, in a more what has traditionally been called an Americanized paradigm okay. of late. Okay. So, you know, any you other distinctions? Ge- any other distinctions that come to mind for you that, that, that Americans should be aware of that maybe we don't see? Well, there's a much more vibrant and strong and accepted. I mean, critical leadership studies is largely or primarily a European phenomenon. Hmm. And you don't have the Mets Elvisons in the U.S. the way you do here. And so, you know, and that's for good and for ill. I mean, there's, you know, um, I think that there are many more. Well, and, and I did, you know, this is an anecdotal statement, but there appear to be many more interdisciplinary approaches to leadership on this side of the Atlantic Ocean to me. Hmm. And that, I mean, frankly, that's why I ended up here, uh, you know, aside from from basic practical reasons, I was not trained in leadership studies. I was trained in American cultural studies. Mm. And so many of the ways that when I moved into business schools, I, I couldn't understand why people were talking about leadership the way that they were yeah. um, and, and, and thrived when I got here on a conversation that was much more multidisciplinary and, and bringing in lots of, you know, so I had more freedom here to, to do the types of things I want yeah. um, intellectually. So. Well, and talk a little bit about at least one of the streams, the, the leadership fashions. Talk, talk a little bit more about mm. that, one of your streams of, of, of writing. Yeah, we actually have a piece out for review. Um, that, well, you know, I have been trying to get published a piece on leadership fashions since 2012. Wow. And it has been nearly impossible. And I'm, you know, you, you, that could speak to my the low level of my scholarship, or it could speak to the fact, which I'm open to, or it could speak to the fact that, um, you know, when I submitted, well, we'll talk about this openly, the piece that I wrote about leadership fashions, I tried to go way to the top first and I submitted it to the Academy of Management Review. And it got through the first round and it was dinged in the second round. So I turned it around and tried to fix the things they told me to fix when it was rejected from there and sent it to Leadership Quarterly. And I received a six-page editorial letter telling me that I had insulted all the great scholars of leadership and that leadership was a science and I knew nothing what I was talking about. I was told I was crypto-cynical and um, that I needed to shut up, basically. Mm. So, <laughs> mm. okay. so um, you know, it's, I, I would argue that I touched a nerve there that had less to do with the quality of my scholarship at the time than with the fact that I was tweaking some sacred cows because the part of the point of that piece has always been that we leadership scholars are integral parts of the leadership industries. And we kid ourselves if we think otherwise. And there's, I would, uh, when I talk about the leadership industries, I distinguish between different aspects. Basically I think there's a general and a restricted field of leadership production and the general field tries to appeal to the most people possible. This comes out of uh, Bourdieu's work on on the way that that cultural fields work uh, operate. But restricted fields of, of cultural production work by 
speaking, preaching to the choir and making mm-hmm. oneself so rarefied and difficult to understand that only the elite can, under, can, can get what you're saying. Wow. And I think that many academic fields participate in that dynamic and to legitimize themselves. You know, that was pointing up that divide was something that wasn't too welcome. So, but, and we're very hopeful to get it, you know, I think it's important to understand the way leadership fashions work. We define them as a social and industrial process that functions to continually redefine the norms and expectations attached to leadership and to argue that certain norms and expectations are better than others. Yeah. And so that's, for us, that's the, that's the, the dynamic that keeps churning out so many different leaderships because it's in no one's best interest in the field of leadership production to put a stop to it and define, yeah. you, know, you know, when you had Kellerman on, she was interesting, but she was basically arguing that we need to professionalize by finally deciding what leadership is and, and teaching it the right way. Hmm. But that in itself, from the perspective that I'm talking about, is a form of product differentiation and, and an attempt to erect barriers to entry. Hmm. so that other people can't get in. And so I'm much more sanguine about the fact that it's always going to be this way, that Uh, since leadership is a cultural product and a symbolic good, there's always going to be bouts in the field about you gain an advantage by introducing, by innovating and introducing a new idea. Yeah. You know, and that's a lesson you learn from studying management fashions, basically back, you know, all management fashions introduce themselves by saying, now is a time of unprecedented change. Everything's completely different than it was before. And so we need a new, we need a new idea. Yes. And, you know, that's what Frederick Taylor said back in the 19, whenever, what, 26? 20s, yeah. yeah so 20s, yeah. So you, it's almost, you know, you can read the, the preface to Taylor's scientific management is almost verbatim. Uh, which, which one was it? Oh, uh, the re-engineering book. What was that called? The first book about business process reengineering is basically has the exact same preface because it basically makes the same argument that yeah. things have changed so much, we need to change the way we approach organizations. And yeah. so leadership scholars are constantly doing that too, saying, you know, times are so, di- times are so different now, we need a completely different approach to leadership. Yeah, yeah. You know, even my friend Mary, complexity leadership theory, which is one of my, you know, I respect the hell out of that theory and I use it all the time and I think it's one of the, you know, I teach it. I use it in my research, but it's introduced as, you know, times are so much more complex now than they were before that we need to understand complexity leadership theory. Well, you know, there's a, I can't remember the name of the economist. Is it Gordon? There's this economist who has argued that the, the most disruptive technological innovation ever was not the computer chip or the mobile phone. It was indoor plumbing. Uh, the toilet, the toilet. I thought, I thought maybe you were going to go to oxen, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> he basically said in, in modern times, I guess, that the toilet changed everything. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, all this stuff about how, you know, product cycles are faster than ever. And, you know, it's a mantra. My, my students at, at Copenhagen Business School are constantly handing in papers where they say, you know, they basically, the first two paragraphs of their papers are always that mantra that they're taught in business schools about how things now are completely different than they ever were before. So we have to think in different ways Hmm. and it's just not logically tenable that we're constantly completely different. And so that's why it's interesting to study leadership fashions. Oh yeah. Well, and you've had some adventures lately. I'd I'd love to jump into Mm. some of your, your adventures in the the restaurant industry. You sent oh. me a video. It was a wonderful video. I, I have the permission to to share that video with. Oh, certainly notes, do. Correct. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. There's more Great. of those, in fact. So that was just the 
the the primer for this, this the collection of videos that we made with us with the chefs. So so you've you've been engaged in actually moving from from talking, and of course we all mm-hmm. we all straddle these different roles, but you've mm-hmm. taken an active role in in helping shape the scene and and. Interesting. Ac- accidentally, completely accidentally. So, <laughs> well, talk about so, it. Tell us about your adventures. This is a, this is a lot well, of fun. Well, actually, what's ironic is, I mean, it's moving into the realm of both research and practical action, and trying to help help an industry facilitate in any ways I can help an industry survive the COVID crisis. But basically, it came out of teaching because I got I got very bored with conventional kinds of teaching many years ago, and started and moved heavily into case teaching. Primarily because what I really want to do in the classroom is invite students to solve problems together. Mm. And I find case teaching to be the best way to do that. And, okay. I, you know, I have to use a certain amount of theory there. And theory, theory is illuminating, but oftentimes it gets in the way because, especially in a European context, European academics, this is another distinction I would make, and especially in education terms, are highly theoretical. It's like you have a bunch of continental philosophers running around. Mm. I was rather impatient with that and also thought that our students needed at least a bit of an alternative from time to time. And so I I moved heavily into case teaching and that's what I like to do. And and I was constantly looking for ways to do it differently. And so um, when I started bringing, when when I brought CEOs and executives in the classroom, I never let them give a speech. I basically made them read the case and participate in problem solving with students. And the ones that are, the ones that are good love to do that. And they, there was one guy, he was the CEO for about six years of a Danish biopharmaceutical company. And he ended up hiring my MBA students every year because instead of talking at them, he would work, roll up his sleeves and work with them. Nice. And so in that context, I was looking for different ways to do that and was at a wine festival with my kids. I love having grown up kids. Yeah. And um, it turned out the guy who owned the wine bar, they had shut down a street in downtown Copenhagen. It turned out he's one of my former students. And we started talking and we started brainstorming ways to do things together. And so one of the first events we did, this is actually with Jonathan Gosling. We, Henry Mintzberg was coming into town yeah. and we threw an event where we filled up a Christian's restaurant with half CBS faculty and half CEOs and other executives and Henry. Nice. And we served a delightful meal and had a flowing wine and made up small groups and had people really work on some problems together. And it was such a great experience that we kept doing it. And uh, eventually through that connection, one of the premier restaurants in Copenhagen is Noma, which has been sometimes touted as the best restaurant in the world. And they started an academy for chefs and they wanted to do leadership in it. So last year I actually worked with a bunch of chefs from around the world about what leadership means in the kitchen and in culinary contexts. Wow. Which is a and fascinating the context, right? I mean, that's a oh, yeah. traditionally oh, it's yeah. very command and control and yes, chef. Well, and, yes and no. no. I mean, it certainly is traditionally that way. It grows out of there's a model that was developed. You know, the model for the way kitchens work was 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 um, the French military from the 19th century, really. Wow. Um, but there is a whole generation of chefs that are really rejecting that model, or at least uh, reconsidering it in conjunction with the sort of the rise over the last 15 years or so of, of foodie culture in a big way. I mean, Copenhagen has become a food mecca. So through that context, I came to know several chefs from amazing restaurants around town. And then the crisis hit. 
February. And I was at the time, first thing that happened to me was that I got sick. And only, as I told you, only last week did I find out that I actually had COVID myself. So at the time when I was in the hospital, they told me that uh, the tests came back negative. So they thought I didn't have it. Mm. Ever since March, I've been walking around seeing people that I had all the symptoms, but I didn't have it. But now it turns out that I, I in fact did have it. But after I got better, we started getting together on Zoom. Some rest, Christian, this guy who had been my former student, and uh, I brought in some of the chefs that I knew. We started having conversations about the tragedy that was going to happen to the restaurant industry. And now, if you look anywhere in the New York Times and all the places, you can read all about what's happening to restaurants all over the world because yeah. there are places where people come together. That's the yep. whole point of restaurants. It's not, you know, the point. And when you talk to these people, one of the things you learn is it's not, you know, it's about the food, but it's really not just about the food. It's about yeah. an experience. I mean, yeah. some of these guys say that our business is the business of love. You know, they're really into creating experiences where people come together and all that was, is, has been threatened by the crisis. And so we started, we kept having meetings and then we realized one of the chefs, amazing, he's an American guy in Copenhagen named Matt Orlando. He had been on a, Zoom focus group with some another chef from New York. With they, they gathered together a bunch of restaurant goers from around the world to find out what they thought about the idea of possibly going to a restaurant. It was back in April, March, April, and so we said, "Well, we should replicate that in Copenhagen." And then we decided instead to first do a survey. So I got a bunch of students from Copenhagen Business School to put together a survey about people's attitudes towards going back to restaurants in the face of COVID nineteen. Yeah, and the. Five master students I got to do it did an completely free did an amazing job. We put this survey up on a Monday afternoon, and within three days we had over four thousand five hundred responses. People wow. were dying to respond and to help, and so we out of that developed this sort of mini social movement that is still brewing. And then I managed to get my bosses at CBS to sort of uh, to partner with it. So what we're trying to do is a figure out how to help the industry during the crisis. Yeah. B, figure out how an academic institution of higher education can facilitate or help in that process and see how we can partner together to develop new forms of learning and education. You know, I mean, there's so many things that happen in, in and around a kitchen that are of would, should be of interest to other types of organizations. I mean, they, mm-hmm. are able to, um, they are able to, for example, achieve a form of collaboration and flow and peak performance on a regular basis that other industries and companies would die to have. Yeah. And they do it in a completely sort of intuitive and unarticulated way. They just know how to do it. Wow. But when you talk to these chefs, they are amazing people who have amazing sort of self-knowledge of what they do. And so we're figuring out ways to develop vocabularies and literacies that we can use to both help them and figure out the, wh- how they can help other industries. Yeah. We had an amazing experience last year when we were running this chef's Academy where we, um, I got together, I did it twice. Actually, there's a Harvard business school case about a string quartet that I have used in the past and about okay. how they achieved artistic flow. And so what I did was I got all the chefs and a string quartet to read the case and then we got together and had the quartet play and talk. And then we broke them out of small groups and they analyzed the case and, and they found out how many things they had in common and what was different and, you know, how they achieved creating, you know, both the quartets that we had, we used two different quartets and, you know, some of these chefs, they both are in a situation where the, 
their craft is so high that neither you or I would know the difference, but they would, they would take a, a plate and throw it out. If, mm. you know, or the, the musicians would, you know, we could hear it. I don't know how accomplished a mission you, musician you are, but Not. you know, musicians can be so good that only people who know well enough what they're doing would know the difference. And so um, they, they had this, you know, amazing sort of, you know, symbiosis between the chefs and the, and the cooks about the discussions about that. And again, that's the type of thing that many teams and many groups would love to figure out how to crack and, and do. So it's been really, it's been edifying and humbling to work with these types of people. And do you uh, think in that context, you know, some, there's some semblance of just really clear role clarity that if, if it's an orchestra or if it's a, hmm. a quartet or if it's, I had a conversation once with a, a friend who who's on a SWAT team and yeah. I asked, I asked about leadership in that context mm-hmm. and, and his response was, I don't, it was almost like he was taken aback, like that there was mm-hmm. some leader. It, it, he said, we all have very clear roles on what we yeah. are about to yeah. do and we fulfill those roles. And one of the episodes you might enjoy is a conversation mm. with Sharna Fabiano. She's done some work with Ayla Chalef, who you know. And mm-hmm. she, she comes out of dance. And we had a okay. really fun conversation about leaders and followers and, and that relationship. And yeah. So is that a piece of it in that context? Is it the extreme I, well, role I clarity? Think so. I think it is. I think it is a piece of it. Although, and again, I'm humbled by these types of people, but from my understanding and actually Ralph Bathurst and Donna Latkin have a wrote a wonderful piece about this that I use sometimes in conjunction with that case. I'm trying to remember the name of it right now. There's an article that they wrote about uh, musical performances. First of all, there's a tendency both with chefs and with musicians to over romanticize what they do. Mm. And, And what I like about what you're saying is that it takes an awful lot of incredibly hard work and, mind-numbing boredom to get that good but what i understand from these people is that they move beyond that role clarity and break they they literally destroy it and break it down so they you know they they have to and i've actually had the same discussion with um i had the privilege one uh, a couple years ago one of my mba students was from the italian special forces and another PhD student at CBS is teaches at the Danish Defense College. So I've had, and, and actually this guy, Christian, I mentioned who owns a restaurant in Copenhagen, he's a former army officer as well. And so we've, we've had them in the classroom at the same time hmm. and worked on some cases. There's a wonderful case from Harvard about friend, a case of a friendly fire where the U S military shoots down its own Blackhawks in, in Iraq. And there too, when you talk to special forces people and I'm way out of my league here, but, sure. but they, they achieve what you just said, but it's not just, staying in your lane and knowing role clarity. It's, it's resting on that and moving to something that's even more emergent. And mm. it's not just role clarity. And to borrow a word from, from Mary Bean, it's, it's about interconnectivity. Wow. You know, rich interconnectivity where, where the roles are interacting with each other in a way that they transform themselves in irreversible ways. Well, and, so, and, and Sharna, I, I'm going to get this incorrect, but, but the episode mm. I believe was called uh, connect, collaborate, create. And she said that you get to, it was almost similar to what you just said, where you get Mm -hmm. to such a state of flow that you can create with one another. And, and to your point, you just said it beautifully. Mm -hmm. Some Mm -hmm. of that just wrote role clarity kind of washes away. 
and we yeah, get to somewhere yeah. new, right? Well, I think that's happening. Actually, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to self romanticize, but um, because I'm humbled by the opportunity to work with these people. But the way that we are collaborating in this consortium of chefs and scholars and friends is very much like that. In the sense that clearly there are roles, and I respect greatly what these people do. But um, the way we're collaborating is very much about. I mean, you saw that one video where. Uh, my student assistant, Victoria, is sitting next to one of the best chefs in the world, and he's totally happy to talk to her, and she's contributing, and it's like the roles are being shed because we're, we're really getting about the business of, of collaborating and letting connections emerge, and that's, you know, so it's not, the discipline is maybe, I guess, necessary, but not sufficient is what I would say. Yeah. What else are you thinking about, Eric? So... Sir? Dr. Guthy, what else is rumbling this. through that head in the south of Denmark on an I island? A lot about my, I think about a lot, a lot about my four acres of property and how we just, <laughs> because we didn't, we didn't know that we had about 22 uh, uh, Mirabella trees. And so it's a massive waste to see all, in fact, I'm, I'm going to this afternoon after we get off, I'm going to go out and pick some more plums and take them up to uh, one of the chefs that we're going to say, I'll take some of those plums. So uh, next year we'll be ready to harvest a massive fruit to reap a massive fruit harvest on this. So I think a lot about that stuff, but I also think a lot about, I I think you met my current primary co-author, Nicole Ferry, when we were at ILA a couple of years ago. Yes. And she and I collaborate a lot. And so I'm actually learning from her. She's a junior scholar in Seattle, but um, I think a lot about gender and gender dynamics and gender politics these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, thinking a lot, she and I collaborate on all this work on the leadership industries but she brings to the table a very acute and critical sense of gender politics. We just, we just actually won the uh, Academy of Management's uh, award for critical work on gender work and organization with a piece that was from her dissertation. Nice. And it was called, it was called there is no lean in for men. And it was basically about the idea that, you know, we, it's, it's great in a way that we celebrate women's leadership and there's a whole wing of the leadership industries called women's leadership but there's no such thing as men's leadership or there is, but it's a bunch of fringe wacko right wingers and men's group movements. But mm. basically the word leadership is assumed to be a general neutral term. But in fact, you know, she, she gives the analogy, you know, uh, there's a marked and an unmarked term. When we say gay marriage, we're basically assuming that marriage is heterosexual. Mm. So, and by the same token, when we say women's leadership, you know, what is leadership then? If it's not, so we're thinking about the ways that the leadership industry themselves are heavily gendered and trying to figure out, you know, I think that, uh, you know, building on the fashions work that we did, that there's something about the discourse of leadership that has to do with affect and emotion. Leadership is the realm of management where, where we're allowed to talk about emotions. Uh. And the leadership industries have picked up on that. And that's largely why the leadership industries are in, in many ways synonymous with the self-help industries. Yeah. So, and, you know, I'm I'm not about the business of just dismissing that. Or quite, I really just want to understand it sociologically. Yeah. You know what what's going on there. So the next thing we're doing in that stream of research is we we published a piece uh, earlier this year in the Journal of Business Ethics that's called Stardom Early. It's again based on Nicole's dissertation research. It's about undergraduate. Well, and actually, you would know a lot about this, but more than I would. But uh, it's about. Um, leadership development workshops in undergraduate programs. Mm. Um, and I know you've done some work there, but it was t- taking a very European critical approach to, you know, basically we were, we were arguing that in a nutshell, the argument was this. It's a bit hard to understand why self-governing adults in a democratic society submit themselves to 
oftentimes very intrusive forms of leadership development that ask them to open up uh, about their personal lives. I mean, in yeah. Europe, we have a very different sense of negotiated sense of where the line is between personal and, and workplace. Yeah. Uh, but even here, you know, my neighbors are all, I have my next door neighbor is constantly about the business of saying, you know, my company has no business demanding that I go, you know, sleep in a tent in my underwear with my colleagues. That's not part <laughs> of my job description, you know, <laughs> as part of her leadership development. So that article basically argued that, well, why do people do this? They do it because we start them very early. When they're undergraduates, we put them in leadership development programs that submit them to all sorts of sort of disciplinary practices. And we, we focus specifically in that paper on, paper on them, icebreakers and uh, assessment tools like yep. Clifton Strengths Finder. Yep. And so next, we're going to write a, we're, we actually want to do a study of the business of the leadership assessment industry, uh-huh. not, not the scientific validity of the instruments, but the financial and market dynamics of why these things are so popular and how they've spread so fast. Oh, sure. So, sure. And uh, no one's, as to my knowledge, no one's done. There's been a couple of great things written about assessments. Peter Case has a piece about how Myers-Briggs actually, I thought it was just a joke at first because it was about alchemy, but there's actually a historical link between the way Myers-Briggs works and the way alchemy works. Sort of wow. quasi quasi mystical astrological and you know and so I can't remember exactly the argument works now but what we want to do is figure out why these things are so massive and so popular and what type of effect that has you know well I'm I'm working on a paper right now with with Dave Rush and and Ron Riggio that we're going to submit <clears throat> and we're looking at the adult learning literature and the adult learning <clears throat> literature if you look at some of the historic orientations of adult learning you have you know cognitivism so the mental processing Mm -hmm. and and the theoretical Mm -hmm. components and you have behaviorism that skill-based domain and social Mm -hmm. cognitive the social learning theory bandura who who are our role models and then you have the constructivist which would be Mm -hmm. making meaning from experience but then you have humanistic and Mm -hmm. that humanistic domain is where i think a lot of that what you're speaking of kind of mm. exists, right? That's mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. self-awareness, identity, motivation, values. And so if you have programming, like to your point, like a Tony Robbins or a mm-hmm, landmark mm-hmm. education, old, the old yeah. EST, then oh, man. You're, you're, you're right in that. Yeah, the Werner Earhart kind of, kind of you're, you're right in that space, right? You're, so, so are you writing about landmark in that piece or...? We mention Landmark, we mention, we mention Tony Robbins only because we mm-hmm. can't think of another kind of adult, in, 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 the, in the States, the humanistic domain most often occurs in student affairs or yeah. in, in, in religious kind of context. At least that's kind of our, that's right. how we're thinking about it right now is that, that those hmm. kind of areas focus mm-hmm. fairly heavily just like just like business school would focus heavily on the cognitivist do- domain mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. student affairs programming or religious programming oftentimes kind of focuses in that domain as well interesting but we couldn't yeah. think of anything really from an adult perspective that you know an adult would pay money to go to that's a leadership development program other than some of those types of experiences and to your point, yeah, they, they start. I want to think about that. I mean, uh, I, it's not coming off the top of my head, but 
my impression is that it is really prevalent. I mean, mm-hmm. but maybe, you know, we have to put the, we have to put our money where our mouth is and, and empirically sort of show that, um, that, um, that the leadership industries are about self-help. I mean, that's why one of the things I'm actually trying to develop, and this might something we could talk about down the road is I had a master's student a couple of years ago that was, that knew how to scrape the web with robotic process automation that she could yeah. send robots out that would run around the web and catch things. And for a while we were talking about using that to find out about leadership. And specifically what I want, one of the things I wanted to do was find out how many damn colleges and universities in the S U S basically, you know, if I were to use the, well, if I were to use the terms that I would use over a beer, I would say force Clifton strengths down their students' throats mm. because what they do is they send out the Clifton strengths tool to students before they even arrive on their first day of campus. Yeah. And then they create total campus environment, total strengths environments. Yeah. And you know, that's a form of, that's a decision that no student has actually made. There's a, there's a very powerful institution that's telling them this is the right thing to do. Yeah. So I think you're right that, that it is in fact student affairs where, where that happens in spades. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and schools are spending massive amounts of money sending money, you know, and, and Gallup is a, privately held in organization yep. that is reaping massive amounts of money from American higher education because all these students are being told the way you become a leader is you consume this commercial product that these people have made. Well, yeah. and in, in reality, so. if, if again, let's go back to cooking real quick. And I've said this before <laughs> on this podcast, but if you want to create a world-class chef, you probably mm-hmm. need all five of those domains of learning. This individual mm-hmm. is going to have to have the knife skills they're going to have to have the education and the, the cognitive ability and the mental processing to do the work. Mm. They're going mm-hmm. to have the experience and have made meaning from that experience. And they're going to have had mentors. And, mm-hmm. and of course, if you have a self-aware individual who that, that humanistic, humanistic domain probably is less prioritized, kind of like maybe mm. with a surgeon, for instance, or, or a pilot, for instance, Hmm. but it, it's an important domain. But when it's the only domain, I would pick on student affairs if that's the only domain. If we're doing leadership development or leader development and the humanistic orientation is really the only one we hit, I think you're hmm. limited. Or the Boy Scouts, for me, hmm. again, you have a great experience potentially, and we can make meaning of that experience. But if I don't have any cognitive structure to kind of bump up against, or I haven't really been intentional about what I was practicing, because yeah. I don't have the, the theory in my head, I might be limited. Or mm-hmm. I, I believe sometimes in business schools, everyone, every mission statement says we're creating leaders, right? Mm-hmm. At the top tw- we mm-hmm. just, in this paper, we looked at top 25 US news and, and every, everyone but two in their vision, mission, or purpose had created right. leaders. Yeah. Or AACSB or it, it's mm-hmm. leadership, leadership, leadership. But in business schools, we tend to focus on that cognitive domain. So I love what you're doing because it's, mm. it's much more experiential and it's multifaceted. It's integrative. It's not just unidimensional because you're not going to mm. have a, a world-class chef if you've put them in a classroom and discussed case studies for yeah. a semester. That's one dimension of the learning for sure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you aren't going to have a chef. Yeah, Although let me let me just jump in there briefly because yeah. I mean just to clarify there's two different conversations that are not unconnected but are they are different in the sense that we're not about the business of creating a world class chef what we're trying to do is create a sense of well, first of all we're trying to help them survive but we're also what's been fascinating to me is that these chefs 
who are themselves chef owners are all vitally concerned with employee welfare and choice. And so they want to create a more equitable. One of the things we're going to be doing is working out a workplace charter for how people should expect to be able to be be treated in culinary workspaces because, you know, the history has been horrendous. And so there's a difference between, and this speaks to the undergraduate experience as well. And maybe this is also a thing about um, another European slash American divide. I mean, I can, I, uh, I try to approach my students as, self-governing adults that can make their own decisions about how they educate themselves. Sure. You know, and, and so for me, it's not about creating world-class chefs, but about helping, helping members of the culinary community be informed citizens of that community and, and, you know, and participate in the governance of that community. Same as in, you're you're intentional about that purpose, which I think is, is the key, mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm, you're not, mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of in, at least what I've experienced, I think sometimes, we have leadership educators or people mm. who, who think they're developing leaders. They really kind of believe mm. they are mm-hmm. when in fact they're developing one dimension and then putting people out there in the world with this, Oh, I'm a leader now. And I, yeah. I, I think it's, it's setting people up at times for failure, but you're intentional about what you're putting into motion. Well, you're going to give me a, you're giving me a lot of credit. Maybe I don't, I'm trying to figure <laughs> stuff out as I go along. <laughs> But I think that's what's key, I mean, right? I mean, if if it's a business school and if it's if it's the cognitive domain, let's uh, okay. We're gonna yes, we say we're developing leaders, but are we at least even aware that we're we're developing one dimension of your of your growth? And yeah. it's an important dimension, but it's also a little bit of a stretch to say, "Hey, Jimmy, you're ready to go." Yeah. Although I would, again, my emphasis has always been, I think we had this conversation when we first met too. Yeah. I am, what I am interested in is developing leadership as a collective yes. capacity yep. or even a social movement, yep. not as an individual capability or, or skill. I just, you know, that may be a thing. I actually just, when I tell my students, I mean, this isn't a visual podcast, but if you picture my arm, like a meter the meter has been pushed so far over to the individual side that yep. I consider it my, you know, sort of contribution with students to just push the meter back the other way so that maybe it'll balance in the middle at some point in time. Yeah. But yeah, the whole know, leadership development, but right? I'm much more interested, you know, in just, first of all, I like working with other people. Some of the scholars you've had on your podcast and the people we run around with, I just enjoy running around. You know, we decided several years ago, Steve Kempster, Myself, Mary Obeen, several others, we just started putting ourselves in situations we didn't understand to learn things that we didn't know we would learn. Yeah. You know, we went to, we did a bunch of work with refugee communities. We did a bunch of work in South Africa when it was possible for us to do that. We threw a workshop in, in we got, we got a, we worked with the Center of Creative Leadership and got a bunch of money to throw a workshop in Geneva about post leadership in post-conflict and post-war zones. Mm. We had no business being there, but we did it because we wanted to learn. And we, we, got, we got military types and diplomats together. It was fascinating. And so this restaurant work is an extension of that. I mean, yeah. I'm totally serious when I say making it up as I go along because you're. I, I'm now in the last 10 years of my career, I just want to have fun and yeah. learn things I didn't know I would learn. So, And who wouldn't want to you know, work with people that often, you know, once in a while feed you an amazing meal and, you know, <laughs> <It's a benefit. laughs> aside from being one of fascinating people and generous people and, but, but also really professional people. So it's more a question of, you know, maybe it's selfish. I like to, you know, putting myself in a position to learn rather than, but yeah. So my point would be 
to me, it's a collective endeavor. Yeah. That's the, for me, the most fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Working yeah. with, so for example, working alongside a guy as fun as Steve Kempster, you know? Yes. Oh, or with, awesome. you know? Yeah. So such a, so, such yeah. a good man, such a good man. Well, Eric, Let's let's wind down here. Oftentimes, I'll conclude with a little bit of a speed round, and so I'd love to know what you're you're streaming Actually, or reading I, or listening to. Oh, yeah. I have a request. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I've loved your previous podcast, but I have to tell you, I'm totally disappointed. Really? For the following reason, I noticed that you started at least two of the other podcasts by coming up with two words to describe the person. I was like, I wonder what uh, Scott's going to say about me, and you didn't yes. do it. Now I'm like. Oh, I didn't rate. I didn't. I'm not. I'm not the two word guy. <laughs> I even had two Eric, words for you, Eric. Eric. <laughs> oh, so, oh, so, so you were going to come back at me with some words. So, Eric, I will. I'm. I'm going to add yours in. I'm going to add yours in in the in the reflection. So, literally, ah, okay. when you listen to David Day, I, I recorded that while you were having your tree done. My reflection, oh, okay. on my podcast with him. Sometimes I you did just now. I do it after. Yeah, yeah, I did it this Wait, morning. Wait, you just recorded David Day this morning? No, I recorded David Day a couple of days ago. But I always uh, okay. edit it and then reflect on it, and then oh, I get it. Okay. Kind of provide okay. a little bit of a summary. And mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. those three words come then. So you're going to have to wait. <laughs> I'll wait. I'll wait. <laughs> you can tell you. You can tell me my three words though, if you'd like. But it's only two, actually. <laughs> The first one is was surprising because, and I, you and I've had this conversation. Yeah, I'm a kind of a jerk. So when I meet people, <laughs> I decide whether I like them or not. And I met you, and I was like, I'm never going to like this guy. And I was pleasantly surprised. I think I really enjoy hanging out with you. <laughs> That's my first one. And the second one, I told you already. You have an amazing radio voice, my friend. When I first heard the, well, turn on the podcast, I was like, Oh yeah, Scott's voice. That's really uh. soothing. So well, thank it might you. be that big, that big ass microphone you got there I'm, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little tired of listening to it at this point. I'll tell you that. That's for sure. I mean, your, your daughter's voice is very nice too. So. <laughs> well, so tell me what you're streaming, reading or listening to. What, what comes to mind? Anything interesting? Oh, what am I listening to? This week I've been listening to Slate Podcasts has... Uh, something called Hit Parade. And there's this scholar, he's not even a scholar, but this guy who does this amazing, he's a critic, uh, cultural critic, and it's a series of podcasts that are amazing dissections of the history of interaction between different musical genres in the top 40. Oh, wow. So I just listened to one this morning about the bands that benefited the most from Woodstock. Oh, interesting. Uh, who was the it? top one? Well, the top one was Santana. Okay. The second number two was uh, Cros- was Neil Young and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, but it was a really interesting sort of capsule history of Woodstock. Oh yeah, and I can't that remember the like guy's name, but it's second, called Hit Parade. I think that was almost so, their second performance, CSNY. Yes, exactly, and they were they, Neil Young didn't even go on until halfway through because, um, and, and they were up there whining about how they were new and didn't know what they were afraid, and um, <laughs> then he came on stage and blew them all away. So. So good. Uh, and there's another, that same podcast has a really great two-part history of, of rap, its relationship with the top 40. So nice. it's really good. Nice. So that and a lot of other podcasts. And yeah. So. Well, well, David Day talked about a television show called The Bridge, which was Scandinavian oh, yeah. noir, noir that he fantastic absolutely loved. Show. Yeah. It's oh. fantastic. And uh, it's about, it's a, it's a, it's about, 
it's as much about the relationship between Danes and Swedes as it is about the murder mystery that's happening. Yeah. It starts I, out with a, a body is found on the bridge between Denmark and Sweden. And when, by the end of the first episode, you discover that it's actually the top half of one body and the bottom of another body. So yeah. one is Danish and one is Swedish. <laughs> I'm going to have to put a, I'm going to have to, <laughs> spoiler alert there, Eric. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about Denmark. It's such a small country that I've run into the two top male leads from that. There, there's two different guys that play the cop in that show. And I've run into both of them because it's such a, it's one of the great perks of living in a country of 5 million people is that you run yeah. into people all the time. So really interesting guys. Kim Bodnia and what's the other guy's name? Tura, Tura Lindhart is his okay. name. Tough name to say. Eric, you got to get back so, to the farm. I do. I have to go pick some plums and I uh, <laughs> wish you were here to help. <laughs> I do too, Eric. I do too. Very much well, so. Well, I mean, are you, uh, are you virtually participating in the ILA conference this fall? I am. I am. I will virtually, yeah, I'll virtually, Nicole and I have a paper there. I'll virtually see you there. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, it was gratifying to be be included. So thanks. It's great to talk to you too. Okay. Be well. You too. Take it easy. So uh, Eric wanted his two words, two words. Eric, if you're still listening, if you've listened to your own episode, now you get your two words. For me, the words are contrarian, and I mean that in the best possible way. Uh, Eric is looking at this topic of leadership uh, not in the conventional way. Uh, He's looking at it from every angle, and he's very interested in understanding the whole. And I really, really enjoy having conversations with him because he helps me see things that I hadn't seen. my, My second word is cool. I mean, he's listening to podcasts about Woodstock while picking plums on his farm in southern Denmark. He's a foodie. He's putting some of what he knows into action and making a difference in his community. And uh, he just makes uh, Copenhagen sound incredible. Now, I know that this podcast has been somewhat U.S.-centric, and so a goal of mine is to really in the next six months, recruit other voices, other perspectives, other viewpoints, so that we, in the spirit of Eric, can better understand leadership. Have a great day, everybody. As always, thank you for checking in. Be well. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.